Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing Arthur Ransom's Rakundra's First Cruise. We're on chapter 24, and this is the 12th part of the reading. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 24, Quivas to Werder. I had a hard job not to spill the milk as I pulled back to Rakundra. The wind was piping up again from the southwest, and the swell of which I have already spoken was beginning to come in. Rakundra was jerking about in so lively a manner that I decided to put out our larger anchor, 67 pounds, on the stout core cable. The Ancient and I hauling together had as much as we could do in pulling the ship up towards the first anchor. We did this with the tiller lashed over, giving her something of a shear, so that we should not be dropping the second anchor on the chain. We then let go and veered out fifteen fathoms or more of cable and chain. We lay in two fathoms, ample for we draw only a little over half a fathom with our centreboard up. We then had supper and turned in. But we got little rest that night. The wind increased to a gale, and sheltered though we were, the current kept Rakundra across both wind and swell, with the result that she rolled me out of my bunk on the top of the big iron pump that was stowed on the floor, sent things adrift that we had considered fast till doomsday, including a water cask, fortunately empty and used to every loose thing in the ship to make a noise like a marching band. It was impossible to sleep. All that could be done was to sit on the bunks, wedge one's knees firmly against the centreboard case, and count how many rolls Rakundra could accomplish in a minute. Again and again the Ancient and I crawled over the deck to see if we were dragging. We took the covers off again and had everything ready to make sail in a moment, but did not wish to do so unless obliged, as we did not then know where to seek shelter without going right back to Haltamar. Rakundra rolled until she took water on her decks over the railings in spite of her notable freeboard, but the anchors held and morning found us still desperately rolling in a swell that was splashing over the pier and made us glad that we had, according to our custom, taking the dinghy inboard for the night. It was too rough to launch the little boat again. The motion was such that we could not cook nor even make tea. So we lived on cold bacon, tinned herrings and beer and relieved our feelings by punching the barometer. In the afternoon, there was less wind. The barometer had fallen to 29.2 inches of mercury, about 988 millibars, but now showed just the faintest inclination to rise. And at four o'clock, as there were patches of sunshine, I went ashore and took photographs, though it was still blowing in gusts that made it very hard to keep the camera steady. An hour later, however, the wind dropped suddenly, and the Ancient and I shouldered the water tank and barrel and went half a mile inland for the water that was fit for humans, as we began to hope that we should be off Riga in the morning. I further took the opportunity of asking where the cutter lay at the other side of the sound. She had not reappeared, so I was sure that she had, on the other side, a better shelter than was to be found here. I learnt that during the war a new harbour had been built at Verda, of which all my charts were ignorant. I got rough sailing directions. Steer straight across the southernmost of three white ruined houses, and when you come near you will see the harbour and you can go into it. There are twelve feet of water and tugs have wintered there. This sounded promising, 
So when in the morning, after a rather better night, we found a bright day, but with wind and strong current still against us from the south, I had the sails up soon after breakfast, and we went across the sound in plenty of time to come back if we should be disappointed in what we should find there. The cutter, held up yesterday by the bad weather, had returned to Quivast, taken on board more red cattle and orange petticoats, and set sail on her way back just after we started. There was enough wind, however, to make Rakundra a fast boat, and we had the wind on our beams, so we kept them well astern until we had gone far enough to see a decent-looking harbour with a schooner's masts above it, but nothing to show on which side was the entry. When I can use local knowledge, I always prefer it, to my own ignorance. So, much to the cutter's astonishment, I brought Rakundra to the wind, hove her to, and waited for them to catch us. But such was the modesty of the cutter's crew that they never guessed why we were waiting, and themselves hauled up to the wind and proceeded extremely slowly, as if they thought that they perceived some special danger ahead. They stared with all their eyes until at last, however, they went on, and giving them a fair start, we let the staysail draw and proceeded after them. Just as we did so, the wind, which had been moderate, strengthened with a sudden squall, so that Cutter and Rakundra alike fairly foamed across the remaining distance. We saw that the cutter steered to northwards of the harbour mole, so we did the same, and a minute or two later had rounded into as fine a little harbour for small ships as ever I hoped to see. We anchored and then, deciding to stay, ran a warp out to the pier and berthed ourselves under the shelter of a huge stack of birch logs, which, since they were much weathered, I concluded had been here some time and were not likely to fly about our heads. We had found this harbour of Verda, or Vertsu, as the Estonians call it, just in time. That night the wind came from the northwest with rain and such violence that the waves breaking on the mole flung great bits of themselves not only over the mole but clean over the woodpile, fifteen feet across and as many high, and down with heavy splashes on Rakundra's cabin roof on the other side. A big open cutter, rather like the ferry boat, lying beside us was half filled during the night by the water tossed across the mole. At six in the morning, the wind was blowing from the north with similar force, but swung round to south again at eleven, giving us a comparatively calm afternoon and evening. I spent the better part of that day fishing on the sheltered side of the pier and caught upwards of fifty little fish, kilos, boneless little creatures like sardines, extremely good to eat, I also had a pleasant talk with an elderly Robinson Crusoe, master and owner of a little open boat, smaller even than Rakundra, who was doing his best to get his things dry after the tempestuous night. He had spent the summer carrying stones at Raval, and now was sailing home for the winter in his own little boat to a bay some half a dozen miles south of Verda. His boat was filled with all manner of treasure acquired during the summer, bits of old iron, empty bottles, a lump or two of good oak, salt, tobacco and other valuables. The salt and such things he stowed in a cuddy forward. He slept under his sails and cooked on a little open stove in the stern. He was plucking a duck for his dinner when I got into talk with him. He had shot it the day before while sheltering behind a little rocky island farther north. He showed me his gun, a fowling piece that might have been the envy of Man Friday. He knew a little English, having sailed three years on English ships, he also knew Lettish, a rare accomplishment among Estonians, in whose folklore devils talk Lettish to each other, which is also the language spoken in hell. He had travelled enough to lose such national prejudices, 
and sat there plucking and cooking his duck, talking with obvious pride with the ancient and me, with each in his own language. In the calm of the evening he put to sea, and the last we saw of him was the dark blot of his sails as he rowed and poled his boat over the shallows and into the gulf, in his way avoiding the current. At night, when the storm rose again with fierce rain squalls, we feared for him, but there was no need. He knew the coast, as he had told us, like the palm of his hand, and the lighthouse keeper who visited us in the morning told us that he had seen the little boat both at dusk and dawn, and that our friend had spent the night snugly in smooth water behind some rocks with white waves on every hand. The next day, the wind was from the southwest, and for the next five days swung to and fro, blowing nearly all the time with tremendous force. For all that time, the ferry cutter was unable to cross from Verda to Quivast. Peasants from Verda and the mainland and men of Moon and their orange-skirted dames came to the harbour and day after day hung desolately about the cutter in wind and rain, at night getting what shelter they could in the forest. This is the equinotian time, said the ancient philosophically, and this is what must be. He, however, could afford to be philosophic, for he had made his berth tight and comparatively dry, and so was much better off than the unfortunate islanders waiting in the woods for the ferry to take them home. It was a wild time. Late one evening we watched a big schooner, close-hauled, trying to make the entrance for the sound from the south. This was during a northwester. As she came, she pointed nearer the wind and made less and less headway, and it became clear that she could not make the entrance without tacking. They hung on to the last minute, and then tried to go about, but she would not stay. Again and again the sails flapped and filled again, while the schooner lost ground. Finally, with jibs wildly flogging, she let go her anchor. Down came the sails, one after another, and we watched her heaving half her length out of the water, dipping her nose under and rearing again. The anchor held for ten minutes. Then, not slowly as with dragging anchor, but in a sudden rush, with parted cable, she was swept away southwards, behind the point, broadside on, a helpless thing just as dark fell. What became of her, I do not know. The lighthouse keeper told us that she did not go on the rocks, but was swept clear of them to the south. He saw no attempt made to hoist sail. They were tired out, he said, tired beyond work, and seeing they were drifting clear, perhaps made up their minds to let her drift till 40 miles south when they would maybe be rested and have a chance of taking into shelter in the Pernau Bight. During that same blow, another schooner under jib and reefed foresail coming from the north swept at terrific speed into our harbour, let go her anchor without standing upon the order of its going and far too near the shore and while it dragged, rowed desperately in their small boat and made fast a warp to the pier with just ten seconds to spare in saving her. The men from the other schooner that had been there when we arrived jumped to lend a hand, and she was presently berthed alongside the quay. The men of this schooner had brought with them a mixed cargo from the town of Raval, salt fish, kerosene and farming tools, and during the next two days the people of the country brought them in exchange corn in sacks, four or five stacks stuffed into each rickety little springless cart. They also brought them a fine sheep, which was killed and skinned up on the quay, and its flesh then cut up, weighed, paid for, and put into a barrel with salt, provision for their voyage. They were taking the corn to Petrograd. The other schooner here was loading firewood for Raval. 
There was nothing to be done with the weather, for though now and again the wind veered northwards, it always backed swiftly to the southwest, while the sea remained in frothy tumult. It was as if the equinox had amused himself by setting northwest and southwest to fight each other, and now one and now the other got mastery in a struggle, the tension of which hardly slackened for a moment. I made a curve of our barometer readings on squared paper during that week, but it might have been taken for a graphic record of the progress of a grasshopper. When we came to Werder, the barometer was at 28.8 inches of mercury, about 991 millibars. After that, it bobbed up and down between 29 and 29.55 inches of mercury. It had been 29.9 inches or 1,012 millibars when we left Hapsal to get into this bout of bad weather. Often, it was nearly impossible to stand on the quay, and we were thankful for our woodpile, behind which was comparative peace. There was no village nearer than six miles away, and we ran out of eggs, meat, potatoes, bread, and worst of all, tobacco. The few houses by the old pier that was used before the building of the harbour are in ruins, and we should have been in a very bad way if it had not been for the keeper of the Verda lighthouse, which, by the way, is not in the least like the picture of it still reproduced on the English charts, but is a plain wooden framework replacing the old tower which was blown up during the war. The lighthouse keeper lives with his wife and three children in a wooden shanty close by, on a desolate spit of bare ground running out from the woods into the sea. He used to come and sit in the cabin of Rakundra, and I used to visit him in his shanty. The only blemish on his conversation was that, like his brother of Runo, similarly isolated from the world, he took an interest in politics and wanted to know what we were doing about Egypt. However, he made up for that by selling us milk, butter and potatoes, and he also gave me some tobacco of his own growing, raw leaves not yet dry, which I hung over the cabin lamp till they crackled and then broke them up and smoked them, and found them a very good deal better than no tobacco at all. Our most interesting visitors, however, were two seal hunters from Runo. I saw them buffeting their way along the quay afar off, and knew at once what they must be. No other men wear pale homespuns bound with black and hairy seal skin shoes. No other men go abroad with long telescopes and crooked sticks. No other men on reaching our woodpile would climb upon the top of it crouching low against the wind and steadying the end of the telescope by using the stick as a support would search so patiently the distant rocks. Presently, they were close to us and stood there, one young man, one elderly, looking down at Rakundra from the quay with eyes so simple that you would think that they had never been troubled by a thought. The ancient talked with them and told me that they begged, for what? For glass bottles, the one thing that they do not make upon their island. They needed bottles for oil, for carrying water, for why not? We gave them a lot of empty beer bottles, and they took off their caps and shook our hands. Then they asked if they might come on board. They came and went down into the cabin, fingering everything enormously, inarticulately interested. A strong ship, said the younger, at last. We too have a strong ship, with five little ones which she carries inside her. And where is your ship? Over there, a half-hour's walk, in a better harbour than this. And there are five of you? Yes, five. Three we left on an island off the coast of Osel with their three boats. We are now two. In four weeks we shall sail back along the Osel coast and find our men, and then we go to Runo again. And have you got many seals? Only one. The weather is too bad for them, but later we shall have more. There was a little more simple question and answer of this kind, 
and then they saw my camera and asked what it was. I told them, and the younger one understood at once and said that they had seen photographs that had been taken on Runo by some Swedish visitor who had afterwards sent them to the island. They were delighted when I suggested making a picture of their ship. They wanted me to come at once, but I told them that for picture-making I needed a good light and not a raging storm with wind and hail. If it should clear later, I would come. With that, we all gravely shook hands and they went off. Chapter 25 Seal Hunters from Runo September 24th Last night we had a further taste of the equinox in a northerly gale with heavy rain. This morning, however, though the wind continued, the sky cleared, the sun shone, and I made up my mind to sail this evening if the weather held and the barometer, now slowly rising, did not take another dive. In the meantime, I determined to use Sunday morning by repaying the visit of the men of Runo. I had promised to photograph their ship. I saw the men of Runo about a mile away on shore, conspicuous in their pale homespuns, and slinging my camera on my back, was blown along the pier and almost off it as I hurried in pursuit of them. These men live on a little island, said I to myself, therefore they cannot be good walkers. At any rate, I, who have spent half my life afoot on the fells of England, ought to be able to catch up with them. Catch them, I did, but after a long struggle, though they did not seem to be hurrying. The older, shorter man was using his carved stick as a staff. The younger was turning in his toes as he walked, and yet they kept up a steady pace, as regular as animals. Trotting beside them was a boy whose dress proclaimed him of the mainland. The men of Runo were, I think, wandering round on this Sunday morning to see what they could gather from the people of the continent. When at last I caught them, they had stopped at one of the few inhabited cottages, and the young one, after greeting me with joy and agreeing at once to take me to their ship, bitterly complained that the house was shut up and no one was at home. He pointed to the sun and to my camera case, remembering that I told him yesterday that I could photograph his ship only if there was a good sun. We set off across the country, the men of Runo swearing that it was not far to the ship. We passed through the grounds of a ruined country house, a fine place before the war, but now a desolate shell, and then out over wide marshland, and after half an hour's walking, they pointed to a white mast against the shadow of a distant wood. The men of Runo and I walked at our natural pace, and the Estonian boy trotted at our heels. As we walked, we talked, a sort of volapuk or Esperanto, composed of German, Swedish and Russian words, stirred well together with a lot of goodwill. We understood one another excellently. They explained that the rig of their boat was not like that of the Estonians, but was a traditional rig from older times than man can remember, and peculiar to Runo. They told me that they had a fine gun, that there were pike in some water to the left of us, that they had shot some good duck in a bite on the other side, and so on. I told them that we were sailing in the evening, but they both vehemently protested. No, no, it will blow again a great storm in the night, but in the morning will be clear weather and a fair wind for Riga. I pointed to the clear blue sky overhead, but they would have none of it. Man, Fran Runo, Kenzweta, Betra I Morgan, Klocken and Fem Siegel, and good wind to Riga, and so on, with such insistence that I made up my mind to wait till morning and see if the men of Runo knew the weather as well as they thought they did. Talking so, we came through a little wood to a tiny natural harbour where their ship lay at anchor. A strange ship indeed, bigger than Recundra, but not much, 
with a large bowsprit, a foremast with a high spritsail and a mainmast of great length, exactly in the middle of the ship, with a marked rake towards the stern, a short gaff and a very long boom projecting far over the counter. Drawn up on the grassy shore were two little boats, shaped like narrow spoons, that could, I should think, be used either with oars or with a single paddle like a canoe. I took a photograph of the ship as she lay there, with the little boats on the shore, and each man ran of his own accord to be photographed, each by his own little boat, which, as they explained, each had made for himself. The Estonian boy wanted to be photographed also, but they would have none of this, and drove him away, saying that he was not from Runo, and therefore should not be in the picture. He ran off angrily into the woods, and we saw him no more. Then we all three got into one of the little boats, and the younger man ferried us out to the ship. I sat in the stern, the younger man rowed in the bows, and the elder squatted in the bottom by way of ballast. The ship had her name in blue and white, elaborately painted on her counter, Juba of Runo. They brought the boat stern foremost under the counter, and I scrambled up and in. Whatever the Juba might want in cleanliness, and she wanted a good deal, she made up in strength. She was built in 1911 on Runo. The elder man had taken part in the building. Her planking was of oak, two inches thick, I judged, and her ribs, square-sided ribs of ash or elm, I could not be certain from their description, which they meant, were enormously heavy. The counter was partially decked, the whole of the midship's portion was open, while the forepart of the ship was decked over with a high curved roof, making a very roomy forecastle. In front of the mainmast were two big barrels, one full of seal fat, the other of seal flesh. A skin was drying in the sun. In the covered forecastle, a great space, bigger even than Macundra's prided cabin, was stowed a great mass of sails and all kinds of gear. They burrow under the sails to sleep. There were shelves along the sides with rough wooden spoons and boxes which they decorate with fire, scraps of leather, partly made shoes, hanks of yarn and fishing tackle. They brought out their seal gun, a muzzle-loading flintlock that might have been used by the Jacobites. They had made a case for it of seal skin with the hair outside. The elder man had also a Japanese rifle, but they both agreed that the ancient flint was better. I asked them if they were going to sell the sealskin in Ahrensburg. No, they said, the sealskins are wanted for the making of shoes for the people of Runo. They showed me their own furry shoes with unpointed tips and worked leather borders, very fine shoes indeed, for this was Sunday, and just as today they were wearing the newest of pale homespun jackets with trousers like straight tubes to match, so they were wearing new shoes, both shoes and clothes being identical with those that they had worn yesterday, except for their newness. Everything they wore they had made themselves on the island or on their ship, with the exception of their caps. The elder had a cap of plain blue, the younger a Newmarket check cloth cap, faded almost white, with holes through which shreds of pink silk lining showed, but still a fine thing from foreign parts and worn with Sunday clothes in simple pride. They told me they came every year to this particular little inlet. I asked how many years? Twenty? Far more. The older man said that his father had brought him there the first time he came. I have no doubt that not for ten or twenty, but for several hundred years, a little ship of strange rig has anchored there and emptied out of its hold the little spoon-shaped sealing boats, and simple men, 
in pale clothes bound with black, with ornamental shoes of sealskin. These men, perhaps better than any other Europeans except the Laplanders, continue into our times the life their forebears lived in the Middle Ages and earlier. Steam has meant nothing to them except a visit from a steamboat once a year. The Iron Age brought them knives and iron boat fastenings, though even now they often build without. A flintlock gun, a Japanese rifle, that rare treasure of a new market cap. What are these but trifles? They could kill seals and cover their heads without these things. One thing of real value to them dropped from civilization they had indeed upon the juba, and they brought it to me in its box and opened its dark magic with proper reverence. It was an old, dry compass from a maker in Wapping, taken no doubt from some ship wrecked fifty years ago on the rocky western shores of their island. We parted with high mutual esteem, expressed by an exchange. I gave them the old pipe I was smoking. The elder man gave me a worn tobacco pouch. Fran England till Runo. Fran Runo till England, he said, carefully stowing my pipe upon his crowded shelf. Then there was a tremendous handshaking and bowing and taking off of caps, after which the younger man took me ashore. I had got his name, and he begged me to send him the pictures, addressed simply, Aronsberg for Runo. We shall get them next summer, when the steamer comes, he said. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.